If you have your Bibles, turn to the book of Daniel, and we'll be in chapter number four tonight. The book of Daniel, chapter number four. I heard a story one time about an African chieftain in the 19th century who traveled to Britain under the reign of Queen Victoria, and if, you, if you're familiar at all about the Victorian era in England, it was, a, it was probably the most prosperous time England has ever experienced. Uh, England at that time was the most powerful nation on the earth, and this chieftain wanted to know why. And so he had, he had an audience with Queen Victoria, and he asked her to tell him, you know, uh, the secret of England's uh, power and greatness. And you know how she responded? She gave him a Bible. And she said, the Bible is the, the secret of our greatness. The, the Lord is the secret of our greatness. And she said, uh, you know, read Daniel 9.21, where the Lord said, God removes kings and he raises up kings. He decides which kingdoms are great and which kingdoms are, are not great. And so uh, she understood that. And, and, uh, but as we come to our lesson tonight, Nebuchadnezzar didn't understand that. He, he still thought that, what made his kingdom great was his own, uh, his own attributes, his, his own personal greatness. And, and so God's going to have to deal with him. Some, put, some scholars refer to chapter 4 as, as uh, God's judgment on Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Now, Nebuchadnezzar certainly was a prideful man. I mean, he had been privy to great revelations from God. We've seen that in the first few chapters. I mean, he had been given this dream of this great image. And uh, not only was he told the dream by Daniel, he was given the dream's interpretation. He was told that he was the, the head of gold. And, and what should have happened in Daniel's heart at that point when he got this clear revelation from the Lord? He should have humbled himself before the Lord. But he did just the opposite. It made him even more proud. And so what did he do? He went out and built this golden statue of himself. And, and, and to, so all the people would, would worship Nebuchadnezzar. And, and uh, when Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego refused to worship uh, Nebuchadnezzar, then Nebuchadnezzar had them thrown into the fairy furnace. But, hey, what did he see when he looked down in the furnace? He saw three men walking, and they weren't burned, and their clothes weren't singed, and they didn't smell of smoke. And not only that, Walking with them was one like the Son of God. So Nebuchadnezzar has had a lot of revelation, and that revelation should have humbled him, but it didn't. I mean, uh, he, he still was a prideful man. And so as we come to chapter 4, God is going to deal with the pride of Nebuchadnezzar. Now is that, let me ask you a question. Do you think what happens here, most of you are familiar with the events of chapter 4, do you think that's the judgment of God on Nebuchadnezzar? I don't see it that way. You know what it is? It's the grace of God. The events that we're going to see take place in chapter uh, 4 aren't for the judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. They're for Nebuchadnezzar's good. They're designed to knock him down so he'll humble himself before God. And uh, he, he'll, he'll, he'll get saved, really, is going to be the ultimate uh, uh, result of all of this. 
Now, it's a really interesting story. It's not often that you have a writing like this narrated by a king. And we're talking about maybe the most powerful king who ever lived on this earth. And so we get a lot of insight into Nebuchadnezzar's life at this point as we, as we look at chapter 4 because Nebuchadnezzar the king is the one who's going to talk to us here. And so uh, at, the, at, at this point, uh, he's been humbled. When he writes down chapter 4, he's been humbled. The events have taken place. He recognizes God as a greater authority than his. He recognizes that Jehovah is the king above all kings. Uh, and so uh, he's humbled himself, and he wants the people to humble themselves. And so listen to what he says in verse number 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar the king to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth. Peace be multiplied to you. I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the Most High has worked for me. For me. He didn't see it as judgment. He saw all of these things that took place uh, in these events that, we're gonna, that are recorded here in chapter 4 as working for him. And he goes on to say in verse number 3, How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and his dominion is from generation to generation. Now, you talk about a humble man. Well, those are pretty amazing words coming from the most powerful king on earth. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had built that golden statue because he wanted his kingdom to be an everlasting kingdom. He wanted his kingdom to, to last from generation to generation. To generation, but after he's been humbled, he doesn't see it that way anymore. Uh, he knows that the only everlasting kingdom is the kingdom of God. He's the only one who has dominion forever and ever. And it's through these mighty signs that God's going to show him these works that He's going to do in Nebuchadnezzar's life in chapter four that we're going to see uh, Nebuchadnezzar's uh, uh, stubborn heart broken down, and he's actually going to come to a saving knowledge of the Lord. I believe Nebuchadnezzar was saved. I believe just reading those first uh, three verses there, we can tell that Nebuchadnezzar was saved. Now, he, now he begins to narrate the story. He says, I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. Everything was hunky-dory. I mean, I had defeated all of my enemies, there was peace in the land. I ruled over the land. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar was building those famous gardens of Babylon. And so the hanging gardens of Babylon, and he was building those for his wife. Uh, I mean, just everything was great for Nebuchadnezzar. And so, uh, man, he had it made. I mean, and I was at rest in my house, and I was flourishing in my palace. You know... I think there's a time in all of our lives, I mean, we don't have palaces like Nebuchadnezzar had, and we're not great kings like Nebuchadnezzar, but there's a time in our life where we think everything is fine. We're at rest. We're flourishing in our home. We're flourishing in our jobs. And, and we, just, we just believe that, uh, that uh, all is well, and we really don't want to be bothered with eternal things. I mean, it's a good thing that some things went bad in my life or I never would have wanted to have been bothered with the eternal things. I think God has to shake the nest sometimes. He has to shake the home. He has to shake the nation to get our attention. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar had it made. 
I mean, he, as far as he was concerned, life could go on like that forever or until he died. But God didn't allow it to go on like that. I mean, if God hadn't awakened me when he awakened me, or if he hadn't awakened you when he awakened you, look at the mess that you would be in. I mean, we would just go right on uh, living our self-centered lives and could care less about eternal things. Isn't it cool that Jesus is the hound of heaven? He's not going to let us get away with that. I mean, if in his foreknowledge, now if in his foreknowledge that he sees a way that you will come to salvation, if that way requires some shaking, then so be it. There's going to be some shaking. There's very few people who are at rest and flourishing in their homes that are going to ever get saved. I mean, that's just human nature. And that's uh, the prosperity of America is one of the things that's bringing America down because we seem to be at rest in our own homes and our own riches. You know, the people that I worry most about the most are those who don't seem to be troubled in life. They have no trouble. They, they live life without any trouble. They seem to, to be in rest and in safety, just like Nebuchadnezzar, man, at rest in my house, flourishing in my ways. And that, at that time, they might be in their greatest danger, the greatest danger of, of uh, going to hell, and, and it's pretty scary stuff. I worry about a nation that seems to be living in rest and prosperity and safety. I worry about a nation like that, that lives like that, while all the time it's becoming more and more evil. You know, if you follow the history of the nation of Israel, right before they were destroyed, they were at their most prosperous state. Amos put it like this in, in chapter 4 of Amos. He, he said, God said, I gave you famine. And in other words, I graced you with a famine. I gave you grace when I gave you a famine. I gave you a famine. I withheld rain. I blasted you with blight and storms, and yet you have not returned to me. For now I will leave you alone. But Israel, prepare to meet your God. Some pretty scary words. There they were living in rest and flourishing in their palaces. And they had forgotten God. And God sent them storms and all sorts of stuff to wake them up, but it didn't wake them up. And so says God says, hey, okay, I'll leave you alone. Prepare to meet your God. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, when they say peace and safety, beware, because sudden destruction destruction cometh upon them. But here's the good news for old Nebuchadnezzar at this point. God wasn't done with him. I mean, he's about, to, he's about to take away his rest. And he begins by giving him a dream. Let's look at that dream here for a minute. And actually, this is what's going to lead to his salvation. Verse number five, he said, I saw a dream which made me afraid. And the thoughts on my bed and the visions on my head troubled me. I, I, here he is living at ease. And then he gets this dream now. He was resting. And he gets this dream and his, his whole world's shaking. And so, uh, who's behind that dream? Who's behind that dream? God's behind that dream. 
And it's not the judgment of God. It's the grace of God. God intended that dream for good. Verse number six. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might make known to me. Now, this time he doesn't ask for the, for the, for the dream. They don't have to tell him the details of the dream. They just have to give the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. Why, why didn't they make known the interpretation? Why would you think? They couldn't? I don't, I disagree with that. Now, I, I think that would be the way most people would look at it. But when we look at the dream here, we're not going to look at the interpretation of the dream tonight, but as we look at this dream, I want you to look at it and see if maybe you couldn't interpret it. I think I could interpret it. I think I could figure out what the Lord is saying in that dream. So if, if I could figure it out, I figured these guys could figure it out. So why wouldn't they give him the interpretation? Well, you ever heard of uh, killing the messenger? You know, I think they were afraid that they would be the ones who would, would suffer if they gave Nebuchadnezzar bad news. I don't think they wanted to tell him the bad news in the dream. But I think the dream's pretty clear. I think Nebuchadnezzar probably could have figured it out himself. And so uh, they don't want him lashing out at them because they bear, they're the bearer of bad news. And so I don't think they tell him the dream. But Daniel's going to tell him. Look at verse number 8. But at last Daniel came before me, and his name is Belshazzar, Baal, the keeper of Baal, is what David's, uh, Daniel's name meant. According to, in, in the name of my God. Now at this point, Nebuchadnezzar was not saved because his God was Baal. And Daniel was the name, the keeper of his God. And so he, he, he understood that Jehovah was a great God. He understood that, that uh, he was a mighty God. I, he called him God above God, the most high God earlier. But even then, he still wants Baal to be his God. It's a lesson there. There are a lot of Baals out there. You see Baal throughout the Old Testament. And you could call any God Baal. Baal really, for, the, for most people, they thought Baal was the God above gods, Jehovah God. Or Yahweh, the Israelites worshipped Baal. But they didn't, worship, they, they didn't see themselves as worshipping some demonic god, which is, that's what they were doing. But they saw themselves worshipping Jehovah in the form of Baal. You, you see the problem? Do you understand what happens whenever we either add to the attributes or take away from the attributes, or add to the revelation, or take away from the revelation we have of Jehovah God, we create a false God. And you can name him anything you want. You can call him Jesus. I mean, I had somebody this week telling me they don't believe Jesus is God. Well, let me tell you what, you got a different Jesus than I got. you got a different Jehovah God than I've got. Because Jehovah God says he's God. So, so uh, whenever we, we do that, we're worshiping Baal. 
we're worshiping a pagan God. We're not worshiping the God of the Bible. These people that say Allah is the same God as the God of the Bible, they're, they're kidding themselves. There's no way he's the same God as the God of the Bible. Those same people will say that the Old Testament God is different from the New Testament God. Well, then their Old Testament God is Baal because he's not different from the New Testament God. And so here was Nebuchadnezzar, and he still, he understood that, that, uh, that, that uh, Jehovah was a mighty God, because Jehovah, he had seen Jehovah do mighty things. But he still was working, worshiping Baal. Now why? Why would a man choose to do that when he's seen a more powerful God? Why would he choose to do it? The same reason people in society choose to do it now. Because Baal is a God you can handle. You can't handle Jehovah God. Jehovah God handles you. And so, so uh, there's, there's, there's a lot of people who, who still are, are worshiping Baal. And, and Nebuchadnezzar was at this point too. All right. Anyway, he says, I, where did I leave off? He said, therefore I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in and told me the dream. And I told them the dream, but they did not make known its interpretation. And so he comes to Daniel in verse number 8. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Baal, Chesar, according to the name of my God. And then he goes on to say, he says, in him... Is this, he goes on to say, but the last Daniel came before me, and his name is Belshazzar. According to the name of my God, in him, in Daniel, is the spirit of the holy God. Now, now, he's calling Jehovah the holy God, and I don't think he's talking about Jehovah being holy in the sense of a moral, in a moral sense. He's talking about in a sense of transcendence, that he is above all other gods. He is different from all other gods. And for some reason, Nebuchadnezzar recognizes that Jehovah God or the spirit of Jehovah God is living in Daniel. How did he figure that out, I wonder? Well, because Daniel told him his dream. Daniel, uh, Daniel gave him the interpretation of his dream. But there's a lot more going on here. I mean, years have passed now since the first time Daniel interpreted a dream for him. What's going on here? He sees Daniel day to day. He sees something in Daniel that's different from the rest of his advisors and his magicians and his soothsayers. He sees a man of God. Anybody who has the spirit of God in him is different from the, from the, from the ordinary person. And when I say ordinary, I'm talking about any human being. The Spirit of God makes us different. And Nebuchadnezzar recognized that. That should have been, that's, that's some light that Nebuchadnezzar received that should have led him to the Lord. I hear people all the time say, well, you know, people are going to get saved if they see Jesus in you. That's not necessarily true. I think sometimes that turns people off. They don't like seeing Jesus in you. It makes them, it convicts them. That, 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 I mean, when somebody calls you a holy roller or holier than thou and all you're trying to do is just live out your life in a godly way, uh, that's, that's what's happening there. 
they're, they're, they see the Spirit of God in you, and they don't like what they see. They don't like because it convicts them that, that they don't have the Spirit of God. And Nebuchadnezzar saw this. Verse number 9, he said, Belshazzar, chief of the musicians, because I know that the Spirit of holy God is in you, and nothing troubles you. And Daniel had, I mean, he understood at this point that Daniel was an even-killed man. I mean, he, he was a man who could work out problems. He was a man who could, could, could uh, solve problems. And so he says, I, I see, he says, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you. So I'm going to let you explain to me the visions of my dream that I've seen and its interpretation. And then in verse number 10, uh, he begins to tell about his dreams. In verse number 10, he says, These were the visions of my head while I was on the bed. I was looking, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. And the tree, verse number 11, And the tree grew and became strong. Its height reached the heavens, and it could be seen to the ends of all the earth. Now, again, we're not looking at the interpretation yet. You just look at what he's told there. That's pretty obvious, isn't it? Who is the tree? I mean, you've got this scene in the dream, and right in the forefront of the, the, the scenery is this great tree, and the leaves reach up to heaven, and its branches spread out through all the whole earth. Now, what is that representing, or what is that symbolic of? Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom. You know, it's, it's pretty easy to figure out. I mean, no doubt that's what God was showing him, this, this great tree that, that's seen by the whole earth, and, and uh, you, can, you can figure that out even without looking at the interpretation. In verse number 12, its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beast of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwell in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. And so the, here's this one-world government and this one-world economy, and everybody uh, is, is, is benefiting from it. I mean, it's providing an abundant amount of fruit and food for every human being on earth. And so, so everybody uh, was reaping the benefits of this kingdom. You know, it kind of reminds me of the United States of America. I mean, I think if Barack Obama had a similar dream tonight, it might, that might be exactly what it would represent, this great tree, this great tree that that's, uh, that's shoots all the way up to heaven and its leaves spread out all over the earth and it affects the entire earth. That's really the way our country is. You know, I heard somebody talking the other day about our economy, if our, the, the China and Russia and and some of the other countries in Europe are looking for our economy to expand because if our economy doesn't expand, then their economies are going to collapse. And so they look to us to, as the great buyer of their products to, to, to boost the world economy. And so we impact the entire world. England at one time impacted the entire world like that. Uh, certainly Babylon did at this point. Now the birds of the air, that's an interesting thing there. When we get to Daniel's interpretation, he doesn't mention anything about the birds of the air. Certainly, there, there could be a little interpretation of here that, 
that birds land throughout the kingdom, but whenever I see birds of the air in Scripture, uh, I'm, I'm a little bit, gets a little bit uh, scary because I think uh, that refers to demonic powers. And I have no doubt as great as this kingdom was, it was filled with demonic power. So the birds of the air, it says the birds of heaven, but you could translate that the birds of the air dwelled in the branches. So they were everywhere. I mean, just like they're everywhere now. Demonic spirits have, have uh, infiltrated every part of uh, the life of, in this world. And so uh, this was no exception. Then in verse number 13, I saw in the visions of my head while I was on my bed and there was a watcher a holy one, uh, coming down from heaven. Now, who could that be? A watcher, a holy one coming down from heaven. There's several interpretations for that. Maybe an angel. Probably, I'm thinking, maybe the angel of the Lord, the one who sees all and watches all. And he leaves heaven so he can shake things up, get Nebuchadnezzar's intention. But look at verse 14 and 15. It, it, it changes a little bit. The dream uh, expands, and he says, He cried out aloud and said this, Chop down the tree and cast off this watcher, this holy one. He gives these instructions. He says, Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beast get out from under it and the birds from its branches. Leave it all by itself. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth. And he says, bind them with a band of iron and bronze. In the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven. And let him graze with the beast on the grass of the earth. So what's happening here? Well, the kingdom or the king's about to be chopped down, isn't he? He's about to lose his power. And the only thing that's left is going to be what? A stump. Now, that's good news for Nebuchadnezzar. Because if you cut a tree down, often if you leave the stump, you don't kill the tree. You leave the roots of the stump, you don't kill the tree. So, so th there's still life in the tree. And there's a chance the tree, over time, will come back. And so that's the picture that's being painted right here. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come back. But in the meantime, he's going to be bound with iron and brass. Now, why iron and brass? Well, iron is, stands for something that's unbreakable, so he's going to be bound, and he's not going to get out of this for seven years. Brass stands for judgment, and so uh, he's going to, you know, you get this uh, brass mixed with, I mean, iron mixed with brass, and so you've got this, this judgment of Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be judged in love so that, uh, actually, it's his pride that's being judged, so that... Uh, He'll get saved, and that's where God's heading with this. But man, he's going to feed on grass and water. You know, even prisoners in jail get bread and water. Can you imagine living seven years on nothing but grass and the dew from the grass? Seven years. Pretty scary stuff. No wonder he was frightened by this dream and lost his rest. Look at verse number 16. He says, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Oh, wait, God can't do that. Let his heart be changed from that of a man and let him be given the heart of a beast, an animal, the spirit of an animal, 
and let seven times or seven years pass over him. So his whole heart is going to be changed. His whole spirit, his whole personality is going to be changed. And instead of being a human being, he's going to be an animal for seven years, an animal in a man's body. God can do that. Well, I don't know about you, but he took my animalistic nature and made it into a saintly nature. So if he can do that, I guess he can do it in reverse. He could take a, a human nature and, and make it a beastly nature. I mean, God can, God can do anything with our hearts and spirits that he wants to do. He can do anything with the hearts and spirits of anybody on this earth that he wants to do. Anytime he wants to do it. That's scary in a way, but it's very encouraging in a way too. Because we see so many hard-hearted people that we see no hope for them as far as salvation goes. But if God can take a human heart and turn it to an animal heart, he can take a, an ungodly heart and turn it into a godly heart. That gives us hope. Gives us hope for the ones we love that we're praying for, that they'll get saved. That there is a chance that can happen. God will be, have to be the one that does it. I mean, remember Pharaoh? I mean, Pharaoh had a stubborn heart, a hard heart. And he said, the Bible said about three or four times he hardened his heart against the Lord. And then it quit saying Pharaoh hardened his heart. It picks up and it says God hardened the heart of Pharaoh and made it even harder. So he had, you know, crossed a point of no return and, and uh, now God was hardening his heart and, and he ended up perishing because of that. Proverbs, in the Proverbs it says, that we've, I've quoted this verse several times, that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. So a king or a president who has a wicked heart, maybe his heart could be changed to a godly heart. Flip side of that, one could come in with a good heart. I don't think if you're saved you're going to lose your salvation, so... Some, a king or a president who saves not going to lose his salvation, but say one that's pretty nice could turn, turn pretty bad. But what's that tell me? That tells me that I ought to be praying for, and isn't that what we're exhorted to do in the Bible two or three times, to pray for the king, to pray for our leaders? And when we don't pray, what we're saying is, well, God can't change that person. I, you know, there's nothing, we, there's no hope. I give up. I'm going to, you know, I'm not going to pray for him anymore. I don't know about you, but I'm convicted about that. We need to pray for our leaders. And so here's Nebuchadnezzar. He's going to be bound in this condition as a beast in the field for seven hard years. Seven years. Why the number seven? That's the divine number. The number of divine perfection. He's, his heart's going to be perfected in those, those seven years. This decision is by the decree of the watchers. More than one watcher here now. And the sentence by the word of the holy ones. More than one holy one. In order that the living may know that the most high rules. Now that's singular there. That the most high rules in the kingdom of men. And he gives it to whomever he will. And he sets over it the basest or the lowest of men. That wasn't a compliment by the way. He was putting Nebuchadnezzar down. And Nebuchadnezzar is going to be shown just, how, shown just how low he is. 
Now, that, that's interesting here, the watchers. Who are the watchers? Who are these holy ones coming down from heaven, these watchers? I mean, I mean probably the obvious answer would be angels. But I don't see anywhere in the Bible where angels are allowed to make decisions that affect mankind. Paul tells us, or the author of Hebrews tells us in, in Hebrews that angels are ministering spirits who, who, have, who are there to minister to those who will inherit salvation. So it doesn't really fit the role of an angel. So who are these watchers? I mean, who are these watchers and who are these holy ones that Nebuchadnezzar sees? Well, it could refer to angels. But I think maybe it refers to the Trinity, and that's why it's in plural. Uh, the Trinity embodied in Jesus Christ. And let, let me give you maybe a little proof text for that. In Revelation chapter 5, verse 6, John says, uh, in his vision, he says, And I looked, and behold, in the midst of the throne were four living creatures. And in the midst of the elders of the church stood a lamb, as though he had been slain. Now watch this. Having seven horns and seven eyes. What did Nebuchadnezzar see? He saw those eyes watching him, those seven eyes. That's what I believe he saw. Which are the seven spirits of God. There's one Holy Spirit, one complete spirit, but seven spirits coming forth from that one spirit. Seven eyes watching. And I, and I think all that is, is symbolic, but, you know, who knows? Some of it might be literal. In any case, I believe that's what Nebuchadnezzar saw. He saw those seven eyes, and he called them the watchers, the holy ones. He knew that was God's eyes. And so... Uh, he said, I looked and behold in the midst of the, no, he said the decision and the decree of the watchers and the sentence of the word of the holy ones in order that the living one may know that the most high rules in the kingdom of man. And he gives it to whomever he will and he sets it over the lowest of men. In other words, Nebuchadnezzar at this point is beginning to understand that it's God who made him king. It's God who made him great. That it's God who chooses who rules this earth. Man, that's a great lesson to learn. That is a great lesson to learn. When the elections come and, and already we're starting to see the, the uh, debates and the various candidates present their issues and, and the various goofy things they're already doing, and, and we're thinking, man, what a mess. And who's going to get elected? Well, you can relax because God knows who's going to get elected. You're going to get to vote. And I'm not telling you not to vote. You definitely need to vote because God can use your vote. But regardless of how we vote, the person that is elected president of the United States will be God's choice for that office. No, wait a minute. Who wins the most votes? Well, let me tell you, God can change the vote anytime he wants. I mean, you go back and you look at George Bush Sr. after the first Iraq war, 
he was running at an 80% popularity rate. I mean, he was killing it. And right before the election, the economy tanked. And his numbers tanked with it. There also was a third-party guy named Ross Perot who came in. Some people believe the Clintons paid him. Uh, I don't know about that. But uh, he came in. But who put it in his heart to be stubborn and run an election he knew he was going to lose so that the Clintons could take office? So I have no doubt whether you like the Clintons or you, you don't like the Clintons, the Clintons were God's choice to rule this nation. I believe... George Bush was God's choice to rule this nation. I believe Barack Obama is God's choice to rule this nation. And if we, if we don't turn around, it might be the devil himself ruling this nation before it's all over with. I mean, we, if, if this nation doesn't turn around and we don't, you know, the, that tells me what's more important, my vote or my prayer? My prayers. Much more important my vote. Now, we need to vote. I'm all for good citizenship, and I think that's part of it. But we need, we need to be praying about uh, uh, the coming elections. You know what? God doesn't just choose kings. He chooses bosses. He chooses spouses. Yeah, you can out you can rebel against God and be bound and determined to get your own spouse, but you look out. He chooses houses. The hearts of mankind are in his hand. He can change your boss's heart, he can change the ruler's heart, he can change any he can change your spouse's heart, he can change your children's heart. And I think that should you know, the lesson there is that, uh, the lesson that Nebuchadnezzar learned is that, that hey, God's in charge. And if he's, if he's in charge, I want to worship the Lord. And if I want to change something, I want to seek the Lord's power and will in that change. All right, we'll stop there and then uh, pick up uh, next time in the interpretation of the dream. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we just thank you for... The lessons we have here in the book of Nebu- in, in the book of Nebuchadnezzar, in the book of Daniel, and what we're learning from Nebuchadnezzar in that book, Lord, I just just thank you for for uh, how you humbled this man, and and Lord, how all of us at one time in our lives, if we're born again, have come to that place of being humbled and repenting and seeing you for who you are, and seeing that we're nothing more than dust and ashes. So, Lord, just just continue to. To work in our lives in such a way that that uh, that we decrease and Jesus increases in such a way that we see you on your throne and Lord that we rest in that that we rest in your power and we we trust you and Lord we're, we're serious about uh, bringing our concerns to you because Lord you can solve things that that uh, the the rulers and kings of this world cannot solve and so Lord just just this is just an encouragement to to draw closer to you, especially as we live in these difficult times. We just thank you for for our Savior, Jesus Christ, who makes all of these things possible through his blood. We thank you in his name. Amen.